Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. This episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. Fitzroy Library is fortunate to have the continued support of the Ewing Trust, a fund that fosters literacy, libraries and a lifelong love of learning in the historic Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. Through the support of the Ewing Trust, Fitzroy Library is able to run special events and programs, including Fitzroy Writers Festival, for the benefit of Fitzroy residents and visitors to the area. On this podcast, we are joined by author Sean O'Byrne to talk about his short story collection, A Couple of Things Before the End, which has been released to critical acclaim. The collection mixes the storytelling originality of George Saunders and Lydia Davis with a sensibility all its own, taking the reader on an extraordinary tour of an old and a new Australia. The book is available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. Welcome, Sean. No Th- worries, Sam. Thanks for being here. Thanks thanks very much for having me. And uh, talking about your collection of short stories, a couple of things before the end. Now, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, um, stories are told in so many forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, interviews, diaries, memoirs, blurbs for fictional books, speeches, confidential reports, press releases, press conferences, internet comic sections, letters, newsletters, text messages, email chains, internal monologues, <laughs> and yarns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, to name a few. Yeah. Why did you decide to use such a range of styles to tell these stories? Hmm. I think that I was, there would be two things to say. One is I was led by the fiction I had read in the years before I started. I got some cues from, or some arguments that you should try and do that from writers like David Foster Wallace. Yeah. I think his collection, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, was a big deal for me. Yeah. Lydia Davis's stories were a big deal for me. Donald Bartholomew's stories were a big deal for me at some point or another. And it came out a little, not to get too digressive straight away, but it came out a, a little out of the story that I'd also taken in as, as an undergraduate in the 1990s. And maybe plenty of people listening to this will remember this stuff. I, was, I came from the outer suburbs. I got to university and I was hit straight away by this big, big amount of story that there was something really wrong with the way that we made narrative in the West. People will remember this story. This is the structuralist and post-structuralist story, the theory story. And again, like I can only appeal to anyone out there who had to take this stuff in. Part of it was a good correction to a complacency about story that was that was in a lot of, you know, haughty Western traditionalism. But a lot of it was just also a kind of shock, which is, look, just about every story you've ever come across, just about every narrative, there's something wrong with that narrative, right? And we're going to make a huge system, which is all about investigating, or that favorite word, interrogating that narrative. And even though I found some of that, I could tell even as a as a kid that it was kind of an overreaction. And I just wanted, say, for example, something like literature just to be allowed to be literature in some way. Then in other words, some of the grand narratives that we'd made, I just experienced them as good and necessary and enough to do with what I was really frightened of. I did also take in a big amount of this, you know, second story, which was coming towards us, which was we need to think again about 
a kind of overconfidence that we've had about story. And the writers I was saying before, Bartholomew, Lydia Davis, Foster Wallace, they were all people that in a way had taken that theory story, accepted some of it, and were taking it into fiction. Um, so after that, after sort of, I don't know, staggering around a bit from what I was taught about theory as an undergraduate and then reading some fiction later, I, I guess I did come to something where I just couldn't make a straightforward naturalistic short story. There seemed to be something true enough about what the theory story had told us, which was story itself is some of our problem. A kind of overconfidence about how much we can control is part of our big problem. And if you're going to make a story now about where we are, what we're mostly doing, you need to include the possibility that there's something really strongly wrong with how we tell a story or at least find formal ways to, uh, I don't know, include a lot of doubt. And what I came to think more and more is a lot of um, kind of built-in incompetence. Mm. Again, like not to go too far with all this, but one of the big differences in the West say, from, you know, the high confidence of the scientific revolution through to the high confidence of, you know, the 19th century was this sense after everything that happened in the 20th century that something's really gone badly wrong with us, mm. with our civilization, with our society, with our culture, and we've got to try and find a way where we can include, again, that old sense, which used to be more in the Christian story of... There's something in the human that's always sinning, always fallen, which was a story that we had to get rid of in a way, but it's almost as if we've got to try and find ways to get some of that sense back. There's one story in particular, uh, Waterboy Taitaki. Yeah. Um, form used is internet comment sections, mm. you know, something which is uh, you know, very familiar to people these yeah. days, um, just part of our lives. Possibly YouTube. There are hundreds of you know quite superficial brain dead comments yeah. just scrolls and scrolls and scrolls of it yeah arguments about this uh celebrity couple it really just kind of hints at what the celebrity couple you know may have done yeah but amongst all these uh you know this just this deluge of um kind of you know superficial brain dead comments mm. there's just a few in there that suggest a much larger problem going on in the world mm. what was the inspiration to write that particular story yeah that's interesting i'm not sure where this would connect to the the, the, the thing we were well, I was just trying to describe mm. but it's got something to do with what's happened what's happened when when we just get a lot of corporate capitalism on top of our loss of confidence or the ways in which a strong you know a pervasive a very powerful corporate capitalism then sort of arrives like it comes to power its influence is the strongest force now sort of operating in culture and society so we've it's almost like two things are happening at once. On the one hand, we're losing a kind of confidence in our, I don't know, in the best of our ability to be intelligent. And that's a good thing. You know, we should think through the ways in which we were overconfident about what we could classify. But then we've got this other awful problem, which is we've got an entertainment system, a sort of a, how would you say this, a corporate entertainment system that's also really interested in feeding off our incompetence. Yeah. feeding off our first, most superficial sense of what we're afraid of or what could give us pleasure. And that story, the, the Tai Tucky Water Girl story, came out of a kind of feeling of, 
yeah, like again, we've we've figured out a way to attack ourselves, attack our old intellectual culture, the old high culture. But we, it's almost like we haven't come up with enough ways to uh, get intelligent again or preserve enough of our own into old intelligence. So sometimes you can get the sense that the whole, so much of our culture now is, I don't know, nothing but these really quick, superficial attempts to be important, that that's all we can make now over and over and over and over. Um, and there's something else that goes along with this, which is the sort of horrible irony or joke of just as we actually got um, secure enough in some way, like um, enough of us, like huge amounts of us got enough to eat and got inside a house which was sort of warm, you know, and, and not going to fall down or be taken away from us. What did we do after we got that much safety and that much privilege? Um, in some way that's hard to understand, at that point, we all got a lot more childish. We all got a lot more stuck in, yeah, as you say, really simple ways, repetitive ways mm. of trying to draw attention to ourselves or, or get get enough pleasure. And that, yeah. you know, with, it wouldn't be too much of an exaggeration to say that's mostly what we're doing now. We're mostly just – and I, I, it was interesting just looking through things like YouTube comments or tweets. It is it is pretty striking how it's almost like we don't – we don't look enough at just how sort of fabulously flamboyantly childish we've become. Just to even to look at the usernames that mm. it's um, there'd be sorry there'd be sort of ways that people who are interested in psychoanalysis could talk about this where we're we're losing so so much of our ability to sort of stop and work up other kinds of intelligence. So we're just left with this first little kind of cry for me, and I can call myself you know Tiger Lord. 69 mm. and <laughs> i don't know how much of this went on in culture before whether it was permissible for people to be that cheaply egoistic but now it seems like i can be tiger lord 69 and no one even under no one even notices that this is sort of i don't know it should be a bit much should be a bit illegitimate yeah. all these millions and millions of sort of tiny but big egotisms that yeah. seems to be what we're mostly making now what you're just talking about now does remind me and you're talking about Wallace, David Foster yeah. Wallace before. Yeah. And yeah, he wrote a lot about um, irony and like layers and layers of irony. Yes. Until it almost becomes you can't tell what the thing that, you know, the original thing was. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, that's, I think that, you know, that comes through in what you're saying as well. Yeah, he's a great teacher and leader to do with this with, for all his faults. He, um, he, I think he he was so shrewd about this back in the early 1990s and, yep. and mid 1990s where he did say look I don't know if you're noticing but because we can't think up because we don't believe anymore really in a kind, in any kind of alternative society that we're going to be able to make anytime soon the one other big idea we had something like a socialism something like a communism has disappeared so you know so many I don't know, young people or people who are trying to read and think seriously, well, they've got nothing to attach to. So the only thing yep. they can get, the only thing they can do and be is ironic. And ironic is I don't want to be here, but there's nothing else to do. So I'm going to signal my difference from it, but also admit that I've basically got no possibility of being anything different, right? The difference that's not enough of a difference. And yeah. he said, if the, you know, this idea of the loving the, loving the cage you're in, but but never all of us getting stuck in, or so many of us getting stuck in, just that 
right? The, the idea that it maybe isn't true in some important way, that there isn't another kind of society, another kind of culture we can think of, and maybe something really wrong has did happen. Um, and we're trying to, we're maybe pulling out of it now, right? That the idea mm. of a socialism is starting to come back and people are taking it seriously again. Yep. But at least in the late part of the 20th century, the only way you could sort of, I don't know, get to some kind of op- opposition was again, the opposition that is a kind of admission that there's nowhere else to go, but mm-hmm. you still want to feel opposite somehow. And yeah. as he, as Foster Wallace said, it's a really, it's not very good for your intellect and your character because you, you, you get stuck thinking that the little amount of protest but the huge amount of conformity you're basically admitting that you're going to have to go along with, you know, is enough, is good enough. Mm. He, he saw, you know, that whole kind of irony or that ironic kind of uh, you know, layer um, as basically a, a, another form of nihilism in a lot of ways. Yes, yes. I think the quote is, how completely banal of you to ask what I really mean. You know, perhaps, you know, Waterboy Taitaki seemed to me almost like a this is where we're at with that now yeah yeah um there are these ideas coming through but they're not coming through yeah they're there but it's just being overwhelmed yeah this is another way to say maybe in a sense where we're up to which is also we we've got really good at you know we've got really good in a way that we're not really good at pleasure yeah i mean the at the all of us now in the west or you know hell through but so almost all of the world now um, we can experience every day kinds of pleasure, luxury, titillation that would just would have been fantastical even 50, 60 years ago. We're really, really stuck in that. Um, but the thing that's coming towards us now is this huge, non-negotiable, so strongly non-ironic event, mm. which is what's going to happen when the weather changes. Yeah. And, and that Taitaki story was some sort of attempt to also go, okay, what happens if a really virulent, titillating uh, entertainment culture comes up against an event that is just really, really strongly the opposite of everything we've been concentrating on, every kind of small pleasure to give enough people a sense that they're important. What happens when that stops? And it's going to stop right mm. soon in the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. It goes to that feeling that I sometimes have over and over, which is that we're like a kind of aristocracy just before the revolution, that we're all, you know, in some way the whole of the West and a lot of the world as well is like going to be like the Russian aristocracy in about getting up to the point where we're all like the Russian aristocracy in about 1910 or something. And we're just going to keep, we're just going to keep refining and over refining or sort of making and over making the kind of pleasure that we've been stuck in. Mm. And meanwhile, this enormous sort of other mm. thing, this enormous other react, counter reaction. Is coming towards us, and the, the, in different ways, in different stories, the book was trying to get at that superficial, entertained sexual party. Mm. It's surely it's going to come to an end soon. You know, the thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, this theme of kind of infiltration. In particular, you know, I was thinking about the story "A Night with the Fellas." Oh yeah, it's basically a guy giving a speech mm. to his mates. Yeah. Um. And he's up there and he's given the speech. And then about halfway through, he starts talking about this mission statement. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and if you won't mind, I'll just, read, I'll just read that mission statement. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. With the challenges of new ways of being in society continuing to impact on Australian men, 
We are coming under increasing pressure to learn new skills, including a much greater reliance on emotion and personal revelation as an integral part of everyday life. As a result, local committees are asked to encourage all members to share their personal stories and revelations with other members in a safe and welcoming environment, to facilitate understanding and respect, and with the ultimate goal of enhancing our cohesion and position as a key leadership group within Australian society. So he's uh, he's got something a lot bigger. He needs to yeah to you know he can't just do this uh, speech to his mates anymore. Yeah, he's got to think a little bit more about it. And, yeah, uh, has quite you know hilarious results. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I don't know. As you read it to me now, I hope that story isn't too mean. I mean, going back to to what we were talking about before. I mean, in a in a in a in a in a way, it's about. Um, the ways that we—it's a—it's a bit about the ways in which we're getting—we're really incompetent now at even trying to get old ideas of community up. Like we've become also individual, and um, so many of the you know habits and the structures around us are all about you know pointing at the individual and saying it's you, you're important. Now just say whatever you want really quickly, and you'll be allowed to. And then what still goes around—it's almost like the the necessary second effect of that is all these really clumsy attempts we go through now to make community, to make tribe. You see that around yep. a lot. Yep. And that really effortful way, and I suppose with the special comedy of, uh, a, oh, I don't know, comedy, but also pathos too, right? Like, and this goes to another sort of, I don't know, sort of confusion with in me that's throughout the book, which is trying to figure out what was good and bad about the old Australian white male working class culture, the old Australian culture, really. Mm. One of the things that's I, I came to think of as distinctive about Australia is it's um or you know sort of characteristic is it was a it was a, a sort of a white male working class, the English a part of the English white male working class sort of you know got transported here, um, and after it did what it did to the First Nations people, it got a it very largely for a long time got a continent to itself. And there were things about that. There were, you know, the crimes committed as they did that. And then afterwards, though, there was a, a special kind of, uh, how would you say this? At least for them, they experienced what they then had um, as a special kind of relief and a special kind of, I don't know, like or something close to a paradise, right? That old idea of Australia as the lucky country, or literally people used to say the working man's paradise, mm. because they were the first working class that really didn't have an aristocracy above them. And so you had that particularly white Australian um, feeling of, well, it's ours. No one's above us telling us what to do or making us ashamed. We've got the whole place to ourselves. Uh, you beauty. Uh, but then with all the distortions that go along with that, that that we got too attached to the kinds of uh, things we could get up really quickly or make us feel good about ourselves really quickly, which was mostly sport. Mm. We never got enough other kinds of culture up enough. We never recognised properly what we did to the people who were here when we got here. But to go back to the all the way back to the Fallas story, so the ways in which what's left of that white working class culture sort of can and can't make community for itself, can and can't explain itself to itself. I grew up with a lot of those blokes and um, I remember, you know, at a footy club awards night or watching something like a, a Bucks club, a Bucks club, a Bucks night speech, a kind of community being made that also seemed to be about maybe having a not exactly a hard time doing it but was also – I don't know, always, you know, that particularly Australian sense of we, we can make community and we're good at it, but we're always a little, 
not nervous or shamefaced, but we're always a bit not sure if we're exactly getting it right or exactly if we can do it. That which actually goes against what I was just saying, but that sense of, in a way, white Australians felt like they never had it so good. But there was always that sort of nervousness in them about whether they were actually sort of able to do it. Yeah, like because again, I guess because there weren't enough other kinds of reinforcing culture. I wanted to mention that one because I thought that was the voice that was most recognisable. Like I oh, just yeah? felt like I knew that guy, oh, that's and good. I've met him, you know, quite a few times before. Yeah, it was a, it was yeah. it was interesting and a treat to go back and remember sort of how kids talked when I was in high school, blokes talked when I was in high school, but also go back and look at um, the texts of things like a Brownlow Medal speech um, and try and get that right. I looked at um, some interviews with AFL players. Mm. Um, and, and also, and I've, I've said this um, a bit before, not just to report a dislike of these blokes and their culture, but also to sort of, I don't know, to my surprise, a little come back towards it, see... Um, see the ways in which I'm still marked by that culture, I would still express myself, reassure myself uh, in that way. I would still kind of try and help somebody else and I would have that language in me, that no worries, yeah, no worries, mate, kind of language. Yeah. It's, 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 it's in me. I'll never, I'll never get rid of it really. So, some, you know, one thing for, through a lot of the stories was both trying to report my separation from and my anger at a mm. lot of, um, ways that you're supposed to be a bloke or man in Australia, but also then, I don't know, trying to call off an amount of teenage anger against it and, and look at the ways or try and re- um, be with the ways that we all have to try and get a personality running yeah. and, and keep it running. Yeah, If there's one thing I hope that the book does in different ways is, yeah, let people uh, both see the ways in which itself – uh, you know, a human personality is both incompetent and there's really something wrong with it and also it's doing the best that it can. Although as soon as I say that, I realise also that parts of the book are also saying, please, God, could we do better? Or is there some way, is there any way at all that we could do better without coming up with an idea of how? One thing that's strange about fiction is you report what you understand sometimes as the worst, the things that really frighten you about being a person and other people. Um, but it's separate to a politics or an activism where you're not you're not coming up with anything that you think people should do right away. You're just reporting the amount, mm. and then you know, and that's and it's almost your job to do that. Like you try and see them as far as you can. You try and see the amount that you can see, and there's something a you, you should stay there and keep doing that without having the responsibility of then I don't know almost ignoring some things or uh, or. Uh, putting some things aside so that you can get a certain kind of political job done, so you can get a certain kind of activism up. Mm. Yeah, that's, I think, part of the argument between literature and politics, where politics needs, in a way, to go, you know what, I don't need to see that much right away. I need to actually get some stuff done. I need to make an agreement between people, and I don't need to point out to them all the things I can see right away, whereas literature is always, I don't know, following along or somewhere next to it, behind it, saying, yeah, yeah, but look, there's all this too. Mm. And even after you've made a good politics, this whatever it is that's still very strange, not properly remembered in the in the, in, the, in the human will be there too. Mm. Yeah, you're talking about reading like Brownlow speeches yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me uh, in the early '90s there was an All Blacks captain called Sean Fitzpatrick. Okay, and he was just like just your classic like bag of cliches. Yeah, like, he was, yeah, uh, yeah. 
and I'd interview him afterwards and he'd just reel off all these things, you know, a game of two halves. Both teams <laughs> played well. Both, both teams played hard. Yeah. You know, credit to the opposition. Yeah. And he'd always end it, end it saying, yeah, rugby was the winner on the day. That's it. Which is, you know, like a classic um, New Zealand line. Yeah. And, you know, he was seen as like a really good media guy. Okay. You know, because of what he did. You yeah. Know, people loved him because he, he was such a kind of a cliche and stuff and helped the fact that he was a really good, a great, kind of one of the great All Blacks captains. Yeah. Then in the early 2000s, there was a guy called Anton Oliver who became the captain. Okay. And he was really articulate. And after games, they'd ask him a question and he'd actually stop and pause and think. Yeah. And he'd frown. And he'd think about what was asked, and then he'd respond to it. And he only lasted a year. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, people didn't know how to take him. No, who wants that? Yeah, yeah. They used to say that, uh, there's a, they said that about Gough Whitlam. Yeah. That one of his problems as a working politician was he would just, he would stop and he would think through what had been asked to him and he would give an answer that got him into trouble again and again mm. and that people found deeply unsatisfying because yeah. he did that thing where instead of closing things off enough he opened them up a little more yeah. right yeah yeah and that's that's not that's not i mean you know it's sort of you never know with this but it would seem that a working politics has to be about not doing that yeah just enough yeah well while we're on politics uh the story leader yes written in the form of a transcript from a press conference yes political language as you know straight manipulation yeah uh and uh sidetracking yes and uh yes yes and throwing back at someone yeah um i guess the sad thing about it is that it's probably the least surreal story in the in, right. the, in a lot of ways because yeah. that's what it's like that's what we are that's what we're, yeah that's what yeah. we're seeing and that's what yeah yeah Th- i mean this would follow from the the, the Tai Tucky story, it's closely connected to the Tai Tucky story. And this is something, again, that Foster Wallace, the, the leader and the teacher, said, which is um, if we're going to run an entertainment system like this, he said this explicitly, quote, we're really setting ourselves up for a fascism because we're just not going to get enough certainty. We're not just not going to get enough authority. There's a writer called Anne, I think it's, her name is Nagel. She wrote a book called Kill All Normies, which is partly about this as well. Um, which I really think is good and, and recommend. Um, Available at Fitzroy Libraries. <laughs> yes, yes. Please come in and get that. And I think there would be plenty of other people saying this as well, which is so you ha- you're running a, a huge, um, fast, silly internet culture and where is authority? And you can feel this happening, right, where just huge amounts of people sort of collect in various areas trying to figure out who knows something who's worth listening to but no one's worth listening to enough and in politics this comes out with all the other boring kinds of authority oh i know something because i read and studied about and i thought it through or i proved i could improve it over a long amount of time all that becomes harder and harder to pay attention to and the thing that we that we are really vulnerable to is somebody who's able to make uh, sort of cheap, quick messages saying that they're absolutely sure that they know uh, who the enemies are and they know what to do to them. For that story, I looked at, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be such a, people would know that I, in a way that this, I would have done this. I looked at a lot of what Trump said in 2016 and sometimes what um, political leaders in Europe were saying, but also the way Australian political leaders talked in a way that, um, you know, so-called Sydney personalities, radio personalities talk in the morning. And 
even though you'd say that's always been around, you know, the possibility of the demagogue, there's something again about the way that entertainment for money, um, this story that we're just beginning to get a hold of, which is huge corporations have got such an interest in letting as many people participate as quickly as possible and then, you know, Christ, setting up a whole secret system to collect as much information about that so they can then sell stuff to as many people as possible that we're now stuck in this. Well, people are just going to feel more and more distracted, sort of more and more nervous in a way, maybe more and more depressed. That all seems to be happening. And at that point, if someone can stand up and make a kind of stupid still point, powerful stupid still point and say, I know, and also this thing that's so terribly dangerous, which we've seen before, which is if you feel frightened or if something's being taken away from you and the bitter irony that what's mostly being taken away is being taken away by the operation of um, international corporations that have no interest in preserving what's good in any particular part of the world, any national area, that's in a way the opposite of what they want. They just want to make sure that they break down protections or, you know, old amounts of, I don't know, interference with business you know, business activity, short-term profit just about anywhere. Um, someone stands up and says, oh, did you feel bad about that? Do you feel as if you're losing something that you used to have? Are you feeling like you can't make as much stable meaning as you used to? Well, I'm the one who can do something about it and this is the deadly one they're to blame. It's their fault, you know, those Mexicans or mm. something, some damn lie. And also, I should say, trying to think about the way in which that could happen here, really happen here in Australia in the next 10, 20, 30 years, that the, the way in which the weather problem, the climate change could happen here, um, a big dry country, um, if we really had serious, serious changes in the, well, I mean, we're already seeing this in the water system, but also if foods, if, if food really did start to get harder and harder to get. And also if, um, something, you know, in this country, if something like home ownership started to get threatened, if the finance system really did start to sort of in a way break up or not function properly, at that point, you would, ha you would think that the leader would come forward. And I did try and think about the, what, what kind of leader would we get and how would he probably, almost certainly he, talk to, Australians, and again, casting back to the people I grew up with, and that sort of, you know, tabloid view of the world, where there's a pretty short list of things that Australian people are, and that they should have all the time, and the idea that they'd start to lose them. Mm. I mean, I think we we'd have as much chance to go berserk. We've never had this in our history as much, um, except for what was done to First Nations people. Uh, you know. The Austra Australian history has not been marked by, uh, you know, within the other parts of it, um, sort of big amounts of violence, you know, from one group to another. But that that might that might change. That might become different. This weather, the weather problem, the uh, the climate crisis, is going to mean that we could, for the very for the first time in Australia, start to have a history like they had in Europe in the middle of the 20th century. It's, mm. you would, you would, it would not be too much to say that's starting to become possible. The effect that, you know, the environmental challenges have uh, on traditional Australian ways of life, um, I think, comes through in the story Missy. Yeah, yeah. In which, told through a series of emails from a woman who is living in Malvern. Yes, from a quite a well-to-do family. Yeah. Uh, but 
it's getting hotter. Yeah. Uh, she's camped out in her laundry, <laughs> and she has a friend yeah. who is in a gated community. Yes. And she's trying to get her family into that gated community. One thing I was trying to get at with that was I came from the outer suburbs um, myself and, you know, was there when I was a kid and an adolescent. And then when I was um, in my late adolescence, I went to a university. I went to Melbourne University. And that was the first time I met what I would think of as middle, middle or upper middle class people. And I was pretty astonished to sort of see them. I didn't know. Mm. Um, and it was the first time I made friends with people who were lived in Camberwell or Kew or Malvern. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting to see it. And that story came out of me. One time, so at different times in the book where I think, come on, you can't just, it's not enough just to try and, I don't know, think through, you know, um, get out your, an amount of anger, but also try and get back to the people you were with. Try and, try and, try and think about people who were more different to you. And I was, I was houseminding out in Kew. Um, and I was in a, a reservoir and people were walking their dogs. And again, it was so interesting to see it the way, and this, this can make you a bit, and this can make you a bit sour. I noticed the way in which they had so much community. You know, one thing about the upper middle classes is they never feel the full um, brunt of neoliberalism. They're always protected enough. So these people, you could tell how much um, family and community they were still running uh, as they all gathered in the afternoon sunshine in this reservoir to, to walk their dogs together. And uh, this man said to another man about the dog, oh, she only drinks running water. She'll only drink running water. And it, it took me a minute to work out what he was saying, which was that if you put a bowl of still water down, the dog won't drink it. And it was one of the few times that I thought I really did think pretty quickly of a sort of an idea for a story because it, it was sort of hit me really quick. Like, what are they going to do? Like, what are all these people going to do mm. when the weather problem gets really serious, when there's serious amounts of deprivation? Like, if they're running at it this way, where the dog is able to live in this 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 a refined manner, you know, mm. with this amount of restriction on what it will and won't have. Mm. Um, and I did go home and, and think about what it would be like and also then the way in which, again, they'll get the special protection, they'll get their special privileges, it'll be quite different for them. There'll be plenty of ways in which they'll make very sure that they don't, they're not going to be like, you know, in the lot, in the, <laughs> at the back of the queue, you know, when, when, they, when, 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 when the, whatever food and water there is, is being handed out. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also, you know, I'm enough, I live in the inner city now, I'm enough of a middle, middle class person to also, as I work through that story, like with the fellas story, to also call off that first amount of um, anger and think, well, I'm privileged enough, you know, as I buy my little coffee and my little this and my little that. Um, mm. So then, you know, at some point in that story, I was beginning to feel and think and feel about what it would be like also if I, you know, was going to have to go to what you could imagine would be a place where food is distributed or even a place where as parts of the city became too dangerous to live in, I would have to go. So again, they I came across this idea pretty late in making the stories, which was this quote from um, this English psychoanalyst called Winnicott, where he says, one thing you're looking for in any kind of play or when you're making a story or when you're making a fiction is you're both making, you're both making enough of yourself and therefore you're making enough against other selves. But you're also doing this thing, and I thought this was such a, such a lovely and sort of true way to think about it, which is you're also trying to make reparation for that. You're also trying to call off the amount of self that you're maybe always making a little too much.
It seems like there was a lot of thought put into the order of the stories. Oh, thank you. That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the stories we've been talking about uh, have been towards the end of the book. Yeah. You've you got stories that are definitely there for laughs. <laughs> yes, that's um, true. And then you know, each story kind of approaches something in a different way. Mm. But as the the last six stories, and particularly the last three stories, take a darker turn. Mm. Uh, which ends with the final story, uh, Bunker. Yeah. It was, as you say, so I did have an idea that the the stories would curve downwards, curve down darker. That's what I wanted. Part of it was if there's a, a hidden, not that hidden, uh, I don't know, how would you say this, line in the stories, it's coming from the Australia that I knew in the 1970s through to like that old idea of the British Australia, um, English Australia, with all the, I don't know, the, again, the pathos and comedy of that, what was silly about that, what I can't help but feel still attached to in some way, working through that. The early story, the first story in the book is called Scout, and it's mm -hmm. partly about that. And then mm. there's another story called Royals, which is also about that as well. Mm. And then into, and not to be too pretentious, but also then what neoliberalism did to Australia, the way in which that old... Uh, idea of a Nash, of a idea of nation, um, sort of bro was broken up by, yeah, again, what we were talking about before, sort of a, a logic that's much more a company logic and a company's idea of what ought to entertain you and how it can make money off you. There's a story called the Anzac Spirit, which is about sort of the, the fight between the two, the idea that what the, the old idea of Anzac now being just another kind of product, yeah, mm. this idea of Anzacery that people talk about mm -hmm. and the way in which that idea really gets, the old idea of Anzac really gets twisted around because um, it's got to, you know, it's got to get, I didn't exactly say this, but it's got to get really near the footy, for example, because we need the footy more at this point, or it's got to get near other kinds of, it's got to become a kind of entertainment for us. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as you say, coming into something that was this curve over and down towards what's going to happen to Australia when the weather gets worse and then trying to imagine when I was a when I was a boy one of the I reckon one of the I, I should think about this more I reckon one of the first books that I really like adult books I really read was 1984 mm -hmm. and I think that that is always with me in some way just the idea that that's pretty much what you should do sooner or later. I reckon that example is is always there as one of the things you should try and use fiction for. And this goes back to before we were talking about the difference between literature and politics. Like literature can't be a politics right away, but what it can do at least is imagine what will happen if politics doesn't work well enough. So a, a literature or fiction can go, yeah, okay, I can see something, I think, and if we keep going like this, this is where we're going to end up. So... That example was there. The late stories from Leader to Missy to Tai Tucky, um, down into that last story. Oh, Missy, and then Bunker. Mm. And the idea of Bunker was, so it was supposed to be the, the last story, and in a way, the story where the weather has become the worst, and to try and imagine what that really might be like. And also, like, uh, again, not to be too much, but like technically, formally, to do something a little where, um, the language would be uh, reduced and in a way, I don't know how to say this, darkened or stilled as well. Like I wanted it to be the sparest and the strangeness, the strangest. So the thought I had sometimes was it's a story where you could almost imagine it being told by somebody from darkness, like someone 
it's like a voice coming to you out of the dark. That sounds a bit highfalutin, but yeah, I imagined it like almost being scribbled on a wall. Yeah, no, nice, nice. Scribbled on, you know. Yeah, yeah, and with that, hopefully, with that idea that you know that that would be it, right? This idea of some sort of terrible diminishing that we, that everything gets smaller and and scarcer and more frightening, and then you know, with hopefully not working the sadness of this too hard, but that there would be someone in there. Like you know, enough like you and me there at the end, going, all right, I'm st- I'm here, I'm still here. Mm. Um, there's not much food now, and there's not much water, and the world has become sort of very different and frightening. And I'm just a kid, just to pour on, you know, just to to get the feeling of, you know, hopefully like doing that thing that you sometimes do in that more awful way where you're just calculating how you can get someone to pay attention to something and feel for it. So it had to be a kid, I reckon. Um, and well, but then also I should say in a more honest way. Like I also thought about my nieces, you know, like I knew, I know kids who are 13 and, 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 and about that age. My friends have kids that old. And, and so then you do think, and I don't know if you do this. Sometimes you see kids now, like you see a baby now and you think, okay, you're going to be alive in 2070, little mm. one or 2090. How's that? How's that going to be going? You know, I mean, my niece, my eldest niece is, um, is, is 14. And you think, okay, what exactly? Like, what is your, what are the late parts of your adult life going to be like? Um, and again, thinking that even in Australia, we, us here now, you know, with our different kinds of coffee and, you know, our this and our that, we could have something happen to us like happened in Europe, you know, like everybody in Warsaw in 1938 was walking around and then by, and then for the, for the Jews who lived in that city by 19, you know, very, very quickly, 1939, the, everything they knew, the world as they knew it, was sort of snapped away. And mm. and, and and if you read the um, the accounts of what happened to people or how people talked about what was happening to them, they say things like, "It took three weeks, mm. you know, for for the world as we knew it to just be, I don't know, to disappear in a way that's very hard for us to understand, and to try and bend my way to bend my mind towards what that." could be like that that happens that you know this bourgeois life that we have which seems just so it seems as natural as the sun you know but it's i don't know it comes out of a very special set of conditions and they're not permanent it's it's funny you say you know it took three weeks for some the world to be turned upside down yeah uh, considering what we're living through right now and just living through there's a an example of it right there yeah very true and uh you know perhaps for anyone listening to this, two years from now, we're in the uh, the COVID nineteen era of of humanity here. Um, yeah, you know, perhaps uh, what's happened now might be a bit of a wake up call for, for people in some ways. Yeah, you'd hope. Well, what do you think? I, I, I that's so interesting. I get the sense that it is and isn't, but also that it isn't more than it is. I it's it should be some sort of it should make us think really hard about how the sort of circumstances we're going through now could become permanent. Mm. But it's almost as if it's all—it's this strange sort of side event where because it'll stop and we'll get everything we had back in a reasonably short amount of time, I worry if it is going to be this kind of outlier event that doesn't teach us enough. Mm. Like I'm struck by how we have we seem to have no memory whatsoever of the influenza mm-hmm. of 1918, 1919, 1920. It's not like, you know, we just never made much of it and it wasn't as if and then now of course we're interested and we find out that tens of thousands of people died in, in cities like St. Louis, you know, through the, um through northern America, other places. 
Um, now we're interested, we see photographs of people standing in a row in 1920 all wearing these masks and it's all so familiar to us. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, somehow that story never sort of carried into enough of our sense of what has, doesn't happen. The, the story, I think, I don't know, God knows, this goes to the huge question of whether we really are humanly capable of learning enough in time mm. about calling off enough of our own pleasure. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, and, 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 and again, not in a too big way that the, the the thing in the book that's the most serious thing is trying to think about that, trying to ask that given what we are, can we change? Mm. Can we? Like, especially now when we've jacked up our pleasure so much, mm-hmm. are we capable of really saying collectively in some sorts of groups, well, we can't have this much pleasure. We can't. It's hurting us. Mm. We need to x we need to y we need to do these things and it means you're not going to have this and you're not going to have that i mean but to go towards the point you're making maybe maybe some maybe some memory of that when we did not get to shop as much we maybe felt a little better we were frightened but maybe it did us some good but then again to immediately go back the other way i don't know i kept hearing these stories of people who just shopped so hard on the internet through the whole crisis and that was the only way yeah. they could really <laughs> keep a hold of themselves i think at this yeah. point we're so 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 deep through this that to be a self now is to shop mm. you know i don't mean that in a cheap or superficial way i don't know what people again and this goes back to the part mm. where you know this was what makes a fascism sometimes i think the history of Germany in the 1930s was if you take away something from the bourgeoisie, if you force it to start to become something more like a working people or what they understand as a people from some other country, they'll go berserk. Um, I think that even the loss of a little bit of privilege permanently mm-hmm. is going to drive Australian people and people just about everywhere crazy mm. and, 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 and paranoid and violent. And the pandemic is in some way the practice that's not going to teach us anything. Yeah. People who are in privileged situations are not even currently losing their privilege, but there are conversations going on around what that just identifying that privilege and that's making people go crazy. Yes, there you go. That's really true. That's really true. If you tell someone they are privileged, that's pretty unbearable to them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. To make a fiction, one thing I'll sort of, I don't know, one reason to get attached to fiction is... Um, it seems to be to do with this, or I think sometimes the, some interesting parts of it seem to be to do with this, which is the way in which the human psyche, the human self is both something that can take in information, realizes, realizes that that information changes something that the self really wants. But then the, the way in which it's, the self is also an engine for not doing that that the self just has to make what the self already has and it will. And if you bring anything into it, it, uh, that it does, that it can't really make itself from right away or that will force it to change itself right away. It, 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 that's only going to make it aggressive, fool, you know, foolishly or nastily aggressive. Mm. Half the stories in the book are, are, you know, that would be in some deep way, the form of them of having something come towards itself and it trying to sort of defend itself against it with hopefully, you know, sometimes in a comic way as well. Um, when I was growing up, I did find, like it made me sad, but I was also very, I thought it was, I did see the comedy in the way in which, especially Australian blokes, will just produce an amount of talk that's um, 
sort of an, hopefully going to stop enough of the world that way in which you can go, okay, this is happening. I do see it. Uh, that is also a factor, but it's not a factor in some important way as well. You're the same. I'm the same. We are not changing. Okay, we're all done here. We're all done. And I really did grow up in that kind of environment. And there's something about it that I think is deep. I mean, I shouldn't, it shouldn't be as funny to me as it is maybe, but I do find it very funny. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Sam. You ask me these questions. I don't know. You know, and that, <laughs> I do. There's something about that, that, and God knows other nationalities might be full of it, but I think the Australian man produces it maybe more than most. Yeah. Um, the, the story Royals. Uh, yeah. It's an example of a group or uh, United Australians for a constitutional monarchy. <laughs> yeah. But it's so advanced in its twistedness that they've actually created internal threats. And those internal <laughs> yes. threats are every that's member of the monarchy. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So you have people who are staunchly monarchist, <laughs> yeah. but are going through one by one, basically systematically uh, li listing why each member of the monarchy is a threat to that monarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this goes back to the idea of, um, like, you try and keep some sort of traditional loyalty, but the way that we, the way that we make the way the way that we make what we know now, we know too much about the royals to be loyal to them in the old way. We just see and hear. We're too greedy in a way, and um, we're climbing in the window to see too much about them. You know, we heard, you know, we heard the next king of England on tape saying that he wishes to be his mistress's tampon, or we saw the Duchess of York you know, putting a man's toe in her mouth. I maybe maybe there was this much in the late eighteenth century, you know, when 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 there was so much strong feeling against royalty as well, right? Maybe maybe people knew this much about Marie Antoinette or about George the Fourth, maybe. But it seems to me it's just harder and harder to keep the the ignorance you would need, the sort of happy ignorance you would need to think of any group of people the way you would need to think of the royals. And also the special problem of I don't know, Australia and the English royal family. There's that great Don Watson line that he says in his book on Paul Keating where the, the, the Queen and Prince Philip are about to visit just as Keating's won the prime ministership and they arrive in Canberra and they, and Watson says something like, and the door opens and they, and, and out she gets the Queen of Australia all the way from London. You know, just that relationship of, oh, the head of our country has come to visit us. Wonderful. We're so pleased she's here. You know, like, what is this? What is this relationship? And the, 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 I don't know, all those years where we held on, you know, you look back in the history of the 50s and 60s, I saw photographs, still photographs of the Queen's visit pretty soon after she became the Queen, so maybe 1954, 1955, and uh, Flinders Street Station with an enormous crown hanging off the front of them. Uh, it's hard for us to understand how much people needed that relationship, but it goes to the essential problem of us being a group, so so um, predominantly a group of English people stuck down the bottom of Asia, mm -hmm. and you know it's nervous that we're here, in some important way, needing not to think about what the what the logic of that's going to be. Mm. You know, pretending that we can all be, um, you know, making a Piccadilly down here, and nothing can change that. Of course, you'll have a Piccadilly below Laos. How could that not be possible? You can do that, and some sort of line running all the way from here to there uh, can still can still, I don't know, stay or come true. And then that sense where 
like when I was a boy in the 70s, you could feel that that relationship was starting to get a little more, it was just harder and harder for us to believe in it. And then through the 1980s, that sort of exuberant time, the beginning of the neoliberal time, where it looked like we were going to make enough money and not need to be English. So we were sort of, we got a bit exuberant for a while, that sort of Australia two time in Australia, that Hawke, first amount of Hawke-Keating where we thought, oh, hell, well, okay, we're not going to be English exactly, but there'll be plenty of money, let's go. Mm. And then in the 1990s, that the beginning of the Howard time where the way in which we weren't going to be English anymore that that was going to be harder for us and we were going to be feel more sourer about that and be angrier about that than we than we understood and there would be some you would have some sense that we still haven't passed out of that um that we're still that we still that the story that we will be this other place and we don't exactly understand what place it will be but it will be a place where lots of different people just make something down here and it has english tradition in it and we we want that and we understand that that's a good, but in some essential way, it won't be English, won't be white. Uh, you know, that is still something that is going to be hard fought, you know, with the, uh, with the weather problem. But the other problem we've got is, yeah, part of the, part of the country here is still working so hard to give up the idea that we are in some way still going to be a little England or a little America and don't you, and, and, and to cover your ears and go, I don't, I can't hear anything else. I went to England for the first time. I went to London about 10 years ago, and I did have that thing that so many Australian people must have, which is the shock of recognition. It was so mm. like Hawthorne, so like Camberwell, brick for brick. And you understood for the first time that it really was this attempt to do this, to make a, you know, make a Hawthorne, mm. uh, you know, down the bottom of Asia. Mm. Um, the other one I think of sometimes is the Art Gallery of New South Wales has those huge names carved on the outside of it, you know, Raphael, Tintoretto. And we don't, we don't have a single Raphael in the country, you know, mm. this idea that marked Australian society and culture for so long, which was, I don't know, a kind of deafness <laughs> that we were so far away, a kind of really strong pretending that we weren't, but also a kind of sadness, I think, really, that we were like a little boy that was sort of waving at its parents from a really long distance going, can you see me? I'm here. Mm. I promise I am. Mm. So you mentioned earlier about how the, the order of the stories kind of... Uh, gets darker and darker mm. and we talked about that final story bunker yeah. did you have the title of the book a couple of things before the end mm. when did that pop into mind as the title for the book ah that's yeah so late late i had trouble with the title i was um i don't know this is sort of a bit i don't know small time anecdotal but it might help other people who are putting a book together um you know i was a bit over eager for any specific story about how people did this or trouble they had with it but let let if it's any help to anybody let them know that I didn't have a title for a long time and I had this idea that if I just work really hard on the stories that's my job and I just don't need to think about the title and it was a bit something because then I had the book done and then I needed the title quite quickly and I didn't I just couldn't I didn't have one and I'm going to go ahead and tell all of this, even though some parts of it are a bit embarrassing. So I thought it should just be called Leader, Leader and Other Stories. And then people, friends and, and people at Black Ink were really shrewd about this. I said, look, it's just a bit, it's a bit heavy. It's a bit inert. You know, it's not really, it's not really drawing anybody in. And I thought that that was right. And then I thought of the title, I, I sort of, you know, at this point you start grabbing around for titles and you, you get a bit too, you think of titles that will bring people to you too quickly. So I thought of the title Australia Land, but then I'm, I knew as soon as I thought of it, it was just a bit, it's a bit cheaply, 
ironic, like wrongly comic in some way, like, a, like the whole thing was some sort of, you know, that formulation, you get it a lot now, that land formulation, mm-hmm. something, something land, mm. and there's something in it that just made me a little nervous, which was you're ironizing it too much, right? You're going, yeah, this thing is here, but it's also in some way just a pretend thing, and mm-hmm. I'm going to show you that, and I was just mm-hmm. nervous about that. Yeah. Um, and then I did have that phrase in my head a couple of things before the end, which... I mean, for what, I'm not sure if it's the best title in the whole world, but it, it did seem to have, um, it did seem to have enough of that. It sounded, it sounded enough like the vernacular I grew up with, you know, just a couple of, and I, I say it myself and it's sort of in the stories a bit, just a couple of things. Okay, everyone, like a, an Australian would open a meeting like that. Okay, everyone, just a couple of things. Uh, you know, that it just seemed enough like that. And then the idea of, giving enough of the idea of, yeah, well, okay, the Australian vernacular, the characteristic enough Australia, and then what? Well, coming towards what really could be the end of it in a couple of different ways, but the most important way would be because of what the weather's going to do. Thanks, Sean. No worries. Uh, A couple of things before the end is available at Yarra Libraries uh, to borrow and also in all good booksellers to buy. Thank you. Um, what have you been reading? What have you been reading recently? I, Because I have to talk about the book now, I've had a bit of an odd thing where I had to go back and look at things that I read for the book just because I wanted to have something, I don't know, remember enough of what I found in those books so I could say, oh, look, I, you know, so I did look again at, at David Foster Wallace, that book, um, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, which is such a, parts of it are so strong and so shrewd and will help anyone who's trying to make a first-person narrative. Um, he's very, very good at smuggling in enough physical detail into a story. There's a story in that book called The Arm, mm. um, and it's a very, very clever. I learnt a lot from him the way in which you can have a voice tell a story, but he's also really shrewdly mixing in enough of where that voice is, the objects he or, see, he, he or she can see. Clever, clever. Um, Lydia Davis also liked that. Lydia Davis, um, her collected stories, which people would be able to get, is... Oh, just a wonderful book in so many ways. One of the things that helped, uh, taught me a lot was also that voice itself can be detailed. Sometimes I would get anxious about that there weren't enough um, physical objects in my pieces because they are a voice saying something. And she did reassure me about that, which is like, no, the sort of idiosyncrasies, the locutions of a voice itself are its own world are its own, not to be, but mimesis. Mm-hmm. They will give you enough of a sense. So, because I noticed in um, sort of an amateurish way, sometimes you'll get a voice-driven narrative and they'll try and also smuggle in what would really be included in a fuller naturalism. So you'll have a voice-driven narrative that will go, yeah, so I'm here in the room and I see that the the summer sun slanting across the desk and you think no one says that mm. that's exactly the kind of detail that can only come where you are this other voice that's mm-hmm. sort of this seeing this all seeing voice mm. it's a different kind of telling and 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 I learned a good deal from people both who could successfully understand what a voice couldn't say, but also people who would just, yeah, again, try for a painterly kind of detail, a more descriptive detail in a voice. Mm. Um, that was interesting. And the last thing I looked at a little was um, just in the last few weeks was this book by Jenny Offal. She's got a new book called Weather, which has just come out. Mm-hmm. But I also looked at her book. It's a wonderful book called Department of Speculation. Mm. And that is interesting, again, as a kind of alternative to a naturalism, to what's, you know, a more not to be mean, but a, a more conventional realism where 
the Department of Speculation book and Weather are both told in a series of sort of separated paragraphs. And I tried to do some of that too, the way in which you can just produce these sort of amounts and they build their own relationships, you know, page to page over the course of the whole book, the way in which he was able to do that and control it successfully. And it was, I don't know, a lovely and a good relief to me not to have to string every single part of it together with one sentence after another. Mm. You could have these um, amounts of the world and then order them which again then go to go right back to the start of what we were saying, seem to have something to do with the way we get information now, the way in which we do um, get a sense of the world as these really separated amounts of information that we take in and the whole job of, I don't know, being alive now is to try and cope with that in some way, go, all right, all these things are separate. It's getting harder and harder to understand anything. It's just one continuously put together story mm. that makes can make sense like that, mm-hmm. um, and Jenny Offal is a is, is very shrewd about that. A good te- a good teacher about that as well. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks for having us. Oh, and okay. uh, a couple of things before the end is the name of that short story collection. Thanks very Thanks much for Sean. talking to me. No, thank you. That was Sean O'Byrne talking about his short story collection. A couple of things before the end. Please rate, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast feed for more podcasts like this. If you are not a Yarra Libraries member, please join. It's free and gives you access to the vast collection situated across five libraries within the city of Yarra. Thanks once again to the Ewing Trust for their support of literacy and learning in Fitzroy, and for making this podcast possible. Mm